morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, so let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Mark chapter 10. When we were in New York last month, we were handing out flyers on the street near a subway. And after a little while, an older man from India began asking Jennifer questions about spiritual things. And they talked for about an hour. Um, This man's name was Santosh. And I was able to listen in on a little bit of the conversation, particularly towards the end. And Santosh was explaining to Jennifer uh, how he could be accepted before God. And he listed all these things that he was doing that certainly God would have to accept him. Uh, he talked about his, his uh, recent life story where he decided that he had hurt a lot of people in his life. So what he decided to do was to take a page and a notebook, one page for each person he knew each person he had a relationship with. So his wife, his children, his co-workers, his parents, in-laws, and uh, friends and so on. And then he, he wrote down all the things that he had done against each of these people in this notebook. And then he went to each person with what was listed on the page and said, this is, these are the things that I've done to you and I'm sorry and I ask you to forgive me. And he basically expected that because he had done something that was almost superhuman, most people don't do that sort of thing. I don't know if anybody in here has even done that. But something well beyond what is expected of us, uh, that, that he would be accepted before God. That God would have to accept somebody like that because he was doing such good things. God certainly wanted him to be loving, he thought. And so Jennifer tried to explain to him that God would only accept him on the basis of Jesus Christ, not on anything that he had done. And we took him to a couple passages to show him that, Titus 3, 5, and Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and so on. And uh, so he, he kept talking on and on. And um, so finally, we, we needed to leave. We needed to go help Pastor Richmond set up for the evening service. And uh, so I left him with this thought. Santosh, if God would accept you on the basis of all these good things that you have done, then why would Christ even have to have died? Why couldn't you just do all these good things and Christ can just stay in heaven? He he doesn't have to come and, and sacrifice Himself. I mean, certainly He didn't deserve it. Why would Christ have to die? And... Without getting an answer from him, I, we simply challenged him to read through the Scriptures because he was finding all of his the source of his understanding from all these different people he would talk to. So he would go to uh, whatever religious people he knew and just throw these types of ideas off of them. And he would never go to the Scripture. And so we encouraged him to, that the Scripture is the most important thing. And you know, there are many people out there and perhaps even some in this room who believe that God's love obligates Him to accept us no matter what. That, 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 that hey, we're good enough. We're, we're not Hitler here, so he, he has to accept us. He's a loving, happy guy up there. And certainly He must, he must uh, save us on the basis of what we have done. But Paul is clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Listen as I read. He says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile. Okay, think enemy. In, in enmity. He, 
the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, and it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As unbelievers, we are hostile towards God. We, we cannot please Him on our own. We need something else. And that is what this, this passage here in Mark chapter 10 is all about. Our inability to receive eternal life on our own. Look at verse 17 with me. We'll read down through verse 27. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Up, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This passage teaches us that God makes the impossible possible. We begin in verses 17 through 22, and we see God's demand in salvation. God's demand for us to be saved, verses 17 through 22. There's two things. The first is perfect obedience. Notice verses 17 through 20. Well, let's start with verse 19. You know the commandments. Jesus lists out the commandments. And and this is in response to what the man had asked in verse 17. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We'll get to that in a second, but let me go back to who this person is. Who was this that came before Jesus? Well, we know that he is a rich man from verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. But at these words, he, the man that came to Jesus, was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. So we know he's a rich man. Matthew 19, verses 20 and 22 record the same story and they call him a young man. So whatever that means, um, perhaps in his, his 20s or 30s or perhaps for some of you young as 40s or 50s, I'm not sure. But, but the point here is that he was a young, rich man and Luke tells us in Luke 18, 18 that he was a ruler. That's why this story is also often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. Because when you combine the three uh, uh, claims of the three gospel writers, you find that this man was all three. Perhaps he was a ruler in the synagogue. We don't know exactly for sure, but, but he was a ruler in some way. And he came with a genuine concern about his eternity, about his forever. Forever. 
Notice at the end of verse 17. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, he was sincere in coming to Jesus. And we already read verse 22 that when Jesus said, you need to go sell everything and, and follow me, what does he do? He becomes grieved and saddened because he wants it. He wants eternal life. So he, this man is genuine. By the way, just because a person is sincere about eternal things does not mean that they're a Christian. Okay, just because they talk, they talk all the, the Christian words and those sorts of things doesn't mean they're a Christian, just like this man. We'll see. He, he does lots of Christian-like things. But Jesus digs a little deeper in verse 18. And He says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this, this verse can be troubling to us because we understand that Jesus is God, that Jesus is deity. And, and so why would He deflect the praise to God? Why would He say no one's good except God alone? But notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, don't call me good because only God is good. He says, why do you call me good? So he puts it back in the, in the court of the rich young ruler. He says, why is it that you're calling me good? He wants to see where he's at when it comes to his understanding of Jesus as God. And this is a very important thing. Look at verse uh, John chapter 5. Excuse me. John chapter 5. In other words, what Jesus is asking here is, are you ready to accept me as God? If you're calling me good, teacher, do you accept me, Jesus of Nazareth, as God? And this is a very important thing that we must come to terms with when it comes to salvation that everybody must come to terms with. Notice John chapter 5, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. There's three reasons from this passage that we know that Jesus is God. Number one, verse 21 tells us that He gives life. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wishes. Now this is a prerogative given only to the Father in the Old Testament. So a person that was in, uh, under the hearing of Jesus at this time would understand that He's saying that He is God. Because only Jesus, only God gives life. And so if Jesus is saying, I also give life, then He's saying that He is God. second reason we see that Jesus is God in this passage is in verse 22 that he judges he is the judge not for not even the father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the son the old testament is clear that only god is the final judge and what god has done here is he's given all that authority to the son jesus christ and then verse 23 we see that the son is to be worshiped and only god is worthy of worship so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. There is none like God. There is no one who is worthy of worship. Jeremiah 10, verses 6 and 7 tell us. 
And it is God who gives this power to the Son, this power to give life, this power to judge, this power to receive worship. And, and the one who, who now is this life giver, this judge, is the one who gives us life. Because he has the authority from God the Father. Turn back to Mark chapter 10. So what Jesus is doing here with the rich young ruler is he is assessing his spiritual condition. Where does this guy come? Where does this guy fit in the grid of spiritual things? Does he understand that I am God? Because that is an important thing to come to grips with when a person is, is asking about eternal things. And so in verse 19, he shows them the requirements for salvation. Here they are. Okay, He gives two things. One is perfect obedience. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now there's a great danger to interpreting this verse apart from the surrounding context, what Jesus is saying in this passage, and the context of the Bible. What the Bible says about how we are accepted before God. Because from this, we could say that God requires us to do works, to obey commandments in order to be accepted before Him. But that's not Jesus' point. His point is to say that that you need to do these commandments perfectly. And what's interesting here is that He doesn't ask the rich young ruler, do you love God? Or do you do you uh, care about spiritual things? Are you really concerned about eternal things? No. He takes it down to a, a realistic level. Because you will find when you come up to unbelievers, that they'll talk about God. In fact, you can find in our country that, that about 90% of people feel that they have a relationship with God in some way. And so when you come up to people, they're going to they're gonna have this God talk. They're going to be able to say some spiritual type things, but that doesn't mean anything yet. Okay, You need to find out where they're at. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, okay, let's take this down to a real level. It's not, do you love God? That's important. But, but let's see how it is with regard to your relationship with other people. Because this is where the, the proof is in the pudding. Okay, this is, this is where it's at. Do you love your neighbor? And that's why he lists these six commandments. And what you'll notice about these six is that they are all referring to our relationship with someone else. Notice, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You see, these are the last six of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't list the first four, which talk about a relationship with God, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, do not, do not have any other God before you, do not take the Lord's name in vain, so on. Those are our relationship with God, but Jesus doesn't list those because He wants to see where He's at. What is your relationship with other people? Turn over to 1 John chapter 4 because what John tells us here is that this is really a good evidence of whether or not a person is a believer. And that is, do they love other people? 1 John chapter 4. Jesus is telling this, this man, this rich young ruler, if you love God, and let's see how it plays out with your love for, the, for your neighbor. Do you do it perfectly? John tells us this is an evidence of our saving faith, that there is really a work of the Spirit in us. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Okay, so if we love one another, this is proof. This is an evidence that that we love God. This isn't the basis by which we are accepted before God. This is proof that we do love God. Now look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God, okay, think of the rich young ruler. This is basically what he's saying. I'm coming here. I want eternal life. I, I, have a, I want to have a relationship with God and yet hates his brother. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The point here is that we need to understand ourselves in relationship to other people because sometimes our idea of God can be so ethereal, so mystical sometimes that it's hard to to get a grasp of it. And God says, if you want to get a grasp of whether or not you love me, look at how you're, you're relating to other people. Are you loving them? Are you showing uh, kindness to them? Are you forgiving them? Or are you holding grudges? Because true believers love other people, particularly other believers. Turn back to Mark chapter... 10. Jesus said in Mark and John chapter 14 verse 15, "If you love me, keep my commandments." So so he's making it more concrete. He's not saying, "Okay, do you love me? Yes, I I love or do you love God? Yes, I love God." No. If you love me, then you're going to keep my commandments. So let's start talking about those. So he lays these out for the man. And the man shows that that he believes that he is in conformity with these commands. Notice verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. So from his perspective, he believed that he was in conformity since the time he was a child to all these six commands. And in his response, Jesus is revealing that, we'll see this in a second, that that you're trusting in your own self-righteousness. That's the problem. You see, you, you think you are obeying these commands, but that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for perfect obedience, and you can't do that. So you need something else. And so in verses 21 and 22, we see that Jesus reveals that not only is he trusting in his own self-righteousness, but also his own riches. And this brings us to a, a good point when it comes to our witness for the lost. When we come to evangelize the lost, we need to carefully and lovingly show them their sin. You are not doing anyone any favors when you talk to them solely about the love of God and you don't talk to them about their sin. Okay, now I'm not saying, you know, show them their sin like we would show a dog their their mess on the carpet. See that? See that? That that's not what I'm saying. When it comes to evangelizing the lost, we don't go up to them and say, You liar, I know you're a sinner. That's not what Jesus does here, is it? When the man says, I've obeyed these perfectly from the time I was a youth, Jesus says, No, that's not true. I know better. That's not how we should show people their sin. Okay? Instead, what we want to do is lovingly 
point them back to the Scriptures and allow them to see themselves in the mirror of God's Word. And as they reflect on their sin and what God expects of them, then they will see it for themselves. Do you see? It's not rubbing their nose in it. It's lovingly leading them to the Scriptures and allowing them to see their sin for themselves. That's what Jesus does here. Because if a person doesn't see their sin as the Bible sees it, then they cannot be saved. Okay, The Joel Osteen Gospel is not a Gospel of the Scriptures. Because it doesn't talk about a person's sin. All it talks about how, how much of a loving, grandfather-like character God is, and He'll just accept you no matter what. That's not true! The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says that we are condemned in our sin, and we stand uh, condemned before a holy God, and we deserve punishment for it. You see, so, so when we come to another person and bring them the Gospel, we need, it has to include their sin. So lovingly show them their sin, just like Jesus does here. Not only does it does salvation require complete obedience or perfect obedience, but also complete sacrifice. Verses 21 and 22. Notice Jesus' compassion for the lost in verse 21. Looking at Him, Jesus felt a love for Him. Now, one thing we need to consider here is that Jesus, when He met this man, this man came to Him as an unbeliever and he left as what? A believer or an unbeliever? An unbeliever. So when Jesus says, when Mark records here that Jesus felt a love for him, what we need to understand is that Jesus even has love for unbelievers. Do you realize that? That our God is a loving God and He cares even for unbelievers. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord God does not wish for anyone to perish. That is, to be judged eternally, but all to come to repentance. God has a desire for all unbelievers to come to Him. We know that's not going to be the case, but but that is His desire. And so should we. When we come to a loss, we should never say, man, I just wish that God would punish them forever. I want to call down curses on them. No, that's not the way Jesus treated unbelievers, nor should we. Now, the expression of Jesus' love is shown in His statement. He gives them the truth. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you know, he'd be kind of upset if I talked to him about his sin or what really his hang-up is. So I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to just show him this love that I have for him. The, the way that Jesus expresses his love and the way that we should express our love is by telling them the truth. Notice what he does in the second part of verse 21. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, does this mean that anyone who comes to Christ must sell all that they have before God will accept them? Because that, to me, sounds like a works-based salvation. No, what Jesus' point here is, get your grip off of those things, rich man. That's what you're counting on to be accepted before God. Because, hey, if God's given you all these riches, then He must love you, so surely you can receive eternal life. He's saying, get rid of all that stuff. That's not what you need. If you want eternal life, you just need me. That's it. So get get your grip off of those things. And notice the response of the man, his unwillingness to submit in verse 22. But at these words, 
he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Salvation requires a releasing of a confidence on the things of this world that we need to get our grip off of the things that think that we think will will keep us before God and and put our grip on Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is ultimately driving at here is seen in his discussion with the disciples in verses 23 through 26 where he shows them it is it is utterly impossible we are unable to satisfy God's demand to be perfectly righteous, to obey all the commandments and to give up everything. We are unable to do that on our own. That's what verses 23 through 26 are all about. We see the inability for the rich to earn salvation. Verse 23, And Jesus, looking around, said to His disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, what He's saying is, how impossible. Notice verse 25. He says that it's impossible by using this illustration. It is easier for a camel, the largest animal in Palestine in that day, it's easier easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So which one is harder? A rich person to enter heaven? To, to, to be saved? Or is it for a camel to go through the eye of the needle? It's harder for a rich person to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. And by the way, He is talking about salvation here because look at verse 26. Notice the disciples understand the point. They say then, It says they were even more astonished and said to Him, then who can be saved? Or in other words, who can enter eternal life? Or who can enter the kingdom of God? These are all synonyms. It's all saying the same thing. So what Jesus is saying is, just like a camel can't go through the eye of a needle, so a rich man cannot enter heaven. And the disciples say to him, wait a second. How can this be? Look at, look at their response in verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. They're thinking, wait a second. If the rich, who is most blessed by God, right? They've got all these resources. God must love them. If they can't, and this guy's a righteous rich man too, right? He's, he's obeying all the commandments from the time he was young. If he can't enter heaven, then the disciples are thinking, who can? I mean, if the most fortunate of all people cannot be saved, then, then how can we have a chance, the disciples are thinking? How can this be possible? That's why they say in verse 26 at the end, then who can be saved? And you know what? That is exactly the point. No one can be saved on their own. No one can be saved on the basis of their own wealth, on the basis of their own righteousness. No one. Not the rich man, not the disciples. And that's what Jesus tells them in verse 27. Notice, looking at them, Jesus said, with people... It is impossible. That is, salvation is impossible with you and with me. We can't do it. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. Yet, we don't have a God who is limited, do we? Notice the end of the verse. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
You see, we have a God who makes the impossible possible, doesn't He? We have a God who makes the impossible possible. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 when there was absolutely nothing in the universe and we had God and it was impossible for a universe to just come about by the word of someone's mouth and yet God makes the impossible possible. Or in Genesis chapter 6 when God wanted to destroy all the wickedness of the earth and bring about more water than had ever been seen or ever has been seen since then to fill up the whole earth so that it went to the top of the highest mountain. That was impossible, yet God makes the impossible possible. Or, or how about Abraham in his 90s with his wife Sarah been promised a son through her? How could that possibly happen? Or Joseph sold into slavery by his bitter brothers. How could that ever turn good? Or when Pharaoh issued a decree to slaughter all the babies. It was impossible for a baby boy to survive in that, in that river who would eventually lead Israel out of Egypt. But God makes the impossible possible. Or when the Israelites had their backs up against the Red Sea and the Egyptians were approaching... They were surely going to die, yet God makes the impossible possible. Or when Joshua leads Israel around the most fortified cities in all of Canaan by simply marching around it, a most bizarre way to win a battle against a military superpower. And that's because God makes the impossible possible. Or when Gideon took 200 men into a battle against tens of thousands, God made the impossible possible. Or when David fought the giant. Or when Elijah was fed by a widow and then by ravens. Or when Israel was led out of captivity. Or when the Scriptures promised that Jesus would be born of a virgin. God made the impossible possible. Or when Jesus turned water into wine or fed 5,000 or cast out demons or healed the sick or raised Lazarus from the dead or walked on water, God made the impossible possible. Or when the hardened Christian murderer named Paul was transformed into the greatest missionary of all time, God made the impossible possible. Or when you and I stand condemned before a holy God because of our sin, deserving of an eternal punishment in hell, it's impossible for us to be saved. But God makes the impossible possible. You see, salvation by our own effort is impossible. It is only possible, whether rich or poor, by the gracious work of God. It requires a work on God's behalf. That He does a work in us. And so we could say now, okay, well, if God makes the impossible possible, well then how does a person get saved? How does a person enter eternal life? What is the answer to the rich young ruler's question in verse 17? And I would suggest to you that the answer is found in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, And they were bringing children to Him so that He might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. We see the disciples' rejection of the children in verse 13. The disciples saw these children as annoying, distracting Jesus from what was most important. And so they turned these children away. But Jesus noticed in verse 14, He was indignant. He said, do not do this. Do not hinder them. Permit the children to come to Me. Because children are equally worthy of My love. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 36 and 37. And He makes this profound statement in verse 15. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. God accepts those who are prepared to receive the kingdom of God as a gift. You see, in their day, the child was the most worthless of all people because they had nothing to offer. There was nothing that they could provide for society. They were basically just an expense. And so they were a big waste of time in one sense until they got to an age where they could work and they could earn a living. They could provide resources. They could be productive. But but as child, they're, they're more work than they are help. And, and that's the way the disciples saw them. So they said, push them away. Get them out of here. They're not important. Jesus says, no, they are. And this is how you need to receive the kingdom of God. This is how you need to receive eternal life. This is how you are saved. Come to me like a child comes. Now, Jesus is not saying come with naivete or with a rebellious spirit like children can be sometimes. No. What is He saying? He's saying come like a child who has nothing to offer. Completely worthless in light of all society. That's how you come to Jesus. You don't come like the rich young ruler who comes with all these things, possessions, Lots of righteous things that he had done throughout his life. No. You come like a child with your arms wide open, begging for mercy. Please save me. I have nothing to offer you. It's like the song we sing, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We have to come to Christ not on the basis of what we have done, but based on the mercy of God, begging for His grace. And notice how Jesus responds to those people who come to Him in that way. Verse 16, And He took them in His arms and began blessing them, laying His hands on them. This was a visual expression of Jesus' acceptance for these children. People who came to Jesus with nothing to offer. And I think the point is clear that, that when we come to Jesus, if we are going to be accepted before God, it is not on the basis of anything we have done or anything we will do or any amount of money that we have or any sorts of rituals that we perform. It's on the basis of God's mercy. God, You are merciful to me, a sinner. And all that God requires of, of you, and perhaps you haven't come to Jesus, all that God requires of you is that you turn from your sins and believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And the Scriptures tell us 
that if Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him, Jesus Christ, from the dead, then we will be saved. That is a promise that we have from, from God, our, saved, our, uh, our King, our Creator. So there's a couple of things I want us to think through this morning. Because salvation is not of us, then we should constantly look back on our salvation with praise to God. God, there was nothing I did. There was nothing that made me more deserving than this unsaved relative or co-worker. There's nothing. Because I came to You empty-handed. There was nothing that I could have offered before You. All my righteousness was as filthy rags. And so our response as believers should constantly be one of, of praise. And amazement like we've been singing about today. And can it be? How can it be that, that God would, would love us? That's our response. Our, our response is to praise God. But let me uh, just give you six implications for our evangelism of the lost. Six implications when it comes to evangelizing the lost. Number one, a person can come to Jesus, desire eternal life, and walk away as lost as they came. Okay, just like the rich young ruler. They can come looking sincerely for eternal life and yet walk away unsaved. The difference is what are they trusting in? And if you are living a consistent Christian life with what you say you believe, then there will be occasions, just like with Jesus, where people will come up to you and ask you, how can I have the hope that is in you? How can I be saved? How can I have the joy that you have? And so number two, that means we need to be ready. That means that like 1 Peter 3.15 says, we need to be ready always to make a defense to everyone who asks us the hope that is in us. Be ready. Number three, that also means that we need to know the Gospel. If someone's going to ask us what it means to receive eternal life, we need to know it for ourselves, right? What are the core elements of the Gospels? What are the fundamentals of the Gospel? What does a person need to know in order to be saved? We saw several of them this morning in our passage. One, no one can merit their own salvation. Two, we must believe that Jesus is God. Okay? Three, we must be willing to remove our grip from the things of this world. Okay, that's what repentance is all about, is turning from our sin and our reliance on the things of this world. Four, we must, with a childlike faith, trust in Jesus alone. We need to understand the Gospel, what it is a person needs to know in order to be saved. And then number four, Another implication for the evangelism of the lost is that we need to help the person see their sin for themselves. Don't condemn them. Don't speak in generic terms. Do you love God? Is He pretty special to you? Hey, do you want to please Jesus? Don't talk in those terms. Get down right to life. Here are, here's your responsibility before God. Are, are, have you met up to it? Find out what the person is trusting in and then help them see what God demands. Perfection. God demands perfection and we can't attain perfection, can we? 
Help them to see that for themselves. Number five, show them love as you speak to them. The best way to love a person is to treat them as you would like to be treated. So if someone knew that you were going to to be headed for some sort of disaster or destruction, wouldn't you want them to speak the truth to you? Or say, no, that's kind of going to bother them a little bit. They might get a little bit upset thinking that there may be a disaster ahead. I won't say that. The most loving thing that you can do is tell them the truth. Tell them the truth in a loving way. Understanding their condition and their potential spiritual blindness, just like all of us, show them love. And then lastly, help them to see that no one can earn their own salvation. And we can't earn their salvation for them. Only God can. Only God can do the work. Show them the need to come to Christ with arms wide open, begging for mercy, recognizing that there's nothing that they have to bring. Has God done the impossible in your life? Are you ready to see God do the impossible in the lives of people around you? Perhaps in some co-workers or friends who you say, they will never come to Christ. They're, They're too lost. They're too far away. Are you ready to see God do the impossible? Because our God makes the impossible possible. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we echo the songwriter that there is nothing in our hands that we bring. Our only hope is the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's why we sang earlier, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We were guilty, vile, and helpless. And Jesus was spotless, perfect, and righteous in every way. And He took our place. He provided full atonement. He, he completely paid the penalty for our sin. He suffered hell for us when you turned your back on Him while He was on the cross. And not only that, but He provided perfect righteousness for us when He obeyed fully all of your commands. And because of this relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ, we are counted as righteous as He is before you. And we are amazed at your grace. Perhaps there are people in here today who haven't experienced the mercy that you provide through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would allow your spirit to convict them and to help them to see the, the gospel as true, and that they would turn from their sins and believe fully in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that is more important in this life than our relationship with you. And we want to submit all of our lives to you. Every part, we want to surrender it all. So we ask that you would help us as we go out into this world that is controlled by the power of Satan, that we would be not conformed to it, but that we would win the lost, that we would show them their need of their sin, need of a Savior, show them their sin and the need need to turn to Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we need Your grace in that way. Sometimes we are so fearful of what people will do to us and what they might think. All the while, they are on a pathway towards an an eternity in hell. Help us to do the most loving thing that we can do. Tell them the truth. Thank You for the example of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in this way. Help us now to apply these to our lives as we go from this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.